Welcome. You're now listening to Dirty Feet. Bonjour. Oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, aka Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. And hosted by Joanny Farrand, JD Papillon, Alison Burns. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. Welcome to the 44th episode of Dirty Feet. So today with us first is Pamela Schneider and Sifiso Seleme, who are presenting the work Tikva Temba at the Tangente de Monument National on September 26th, 27th, 28th and 29th. So first of all, hi, how are you doing? Great. We are doing great. Good. There's a really uh, fascinating history between uh, behind the the origin of of the work that you're going to be presenting Tikva Temba. So, could you tell us a bit about how you met and how this work first came about? Sure. Um, we actually met at Impulse Dance Festival. I went to the festival last summer, and uh, Sfiso was teaching a Pensula workshop. And I took that workshop. I've actually had been researching a, about Pensula in my career and my days of, of a creator because I was very inspired by the different uh, dance movements that have come out of uh, oppressed communities or come out of communities that um, have had a lot of struggle and what kind of creation has, has come about. And Pansula is one of those dances. Um, so I took this workshop very, very excited. And the workshop was so inspiring, the way that Sfiso taught it. Um, I think he's been taught by his grandfather, is what I understood, and just from growing up in South Africa. And the way that it provides Um, people to look at each other in the eyes and to really, um, despite where all we came, where we all came from, and the color of our skin and who we were, we, in five days, created this family together through the the movement that we were doing, the ritual dances we did in the morning, the um, face expressions we'd make at each other, and this and that. So after that workshop, we started to dialogue about what was going on in society and where we both both were at as artists and. We decided to meet up in Greece after the festival was done, and we were given, granted a, a beautiful apartment from a friend of ours. That was an amazing miracle, and through that we did a sort of residency there. Being invited to a Peace Day Live event in Israel uh, and Palestine, we started to talk about a piece that we wanted to create, and that's where Tikva Tempo was birthed. There is a strong aspect of this meeting of cultures, uh, you know, in your story and in the emergence of the piece. And you do come from two very different backgrounds. Could you tell me a bit about where you come from, the training you received, and what brought you into dance in the first place? I mean, for me, I was discovered for, for, uh, by someone who went to some school in Brussels. <laughs> He discovered me on the streets. He came like several times to come and check me out when I was performing on the streets. From there, I mean, I was invited to come and take contemporary classes. I started taking contemporary classes. I mean, it, it was like early 20s, my early 20s. Then from there, I mean, that's where I I was able like to make contacts. Yeah. I come from a very different background. I grew up in Vancouver, BC, and moved to Montreal when I was about 17. I was always dancing and doing gymnastics and always a very active child and always had a vision to do 
stuff with using video and projection. I was always very inspired by film and um, the way that dance and movement all work together. And I started actually studying sciences at McGill, having a scholarship there, and then met actually Helen and all these girls, Susie and Camelia, all these girls that were breakdancing at the time. And I started to, to jam with them. We started to break together. And we started to hang out a lot, and they a lot of them had actually gone to Concordia's dance department, and so they told me about Concordia um, having this interdisciplinary studies program. That's something that might be interesting to me because I was a little bit bored just doing sciences. <clears throat> so I started... I actually applied for the Concordia um, Interdisciplinary Studies Program, and I got in there, and I started dancing and doing video and doing interactive media and all of these things. And breakdancing was a big part of my life as well. We danced in the street, and it was, it was actually what kept me kept my energy very high kept me able to you know I created so much in those years and I think it's because I was constantly dancing constantly moving constantly um, being inspired constantly reading up about this um, you know break dancing and learning about it what it was and the also the the crews you know moving here you don't necessarily have your whole family your friends around but break dancing became this whole new family that open you know opens up doors to you meet people wherever you go you meet other break dancers and it's it's very interesting the way that you become part of this whole community and yeah I mean <laughs> a lot of stuff happened since then when you say sciences were you studying uh, social sciences or yeah I was studying well I was studying psychology okay. in science in the science department so and from the get-go I mean that seems to obviously play into the work that you're making now Did, would you realize that back then that this was something that was in tandem with your with your dance career yeah definitely I did I never saw myself necessarily having only a dance career um, definitely as a child I was always really interested in the sciences and the arts I was also sculpting I was painting I was doing a bunch of things and everyone would always tell me Pam you have to choose 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 and I would say no I don't why do I have to choose so I didn't choose but um, it's definitely all come into the work I'm doing like even with Suviso, uh, when we met, you know, he makes costumes. He also designs. He has his own clothing line, and you know, we ended up we made we made our, um, our all of our costumes. We made of all of our set pieces, our props, and any kind of set design that we do. I also make video, and we made the sound. Like we're pretty much a two two person team. The idea with it though is to spread this the movement around and create other soldiers of peace around the world. But I guess we'll get into that. I have a similar question then for for, for you, Sophie. So was this something that uh, this idea of a social aspect to your performance, was that something that was present before you met up with Pamela when you were breakdancing in the streets or was that something uh, that is new? No, no, it was something that it's, it was there since the beginning because, I mean, even for me to survive from the streets, you really have to be social to everyone so that they could give you money, they could pop out money when you're performing on the street corner or somewhere in the train station. So, I mean, it's really like an in important element of uh, this dance. Even the work that Sviso does, I was very inspired by when we started dialoguing. He started to show me the work that he, he, he created and creates, and he all the work he does is visually very stimulating and very fashion-oriented and very attractive, yet very politically strong and very open in terms of finding that the link between different cultures and different people and addressing and confronting the issues that are going down that are keeping the divides and keeping the, the negative aspects of our world intact. 
If you can describe for our listening audience mm-hmm. a little bit of what this fashion looks like, perhaps that's a door into uh, the, uh, the description mm-hmm. of what's going on. I mean, my clothing range, it's, it's a vintage, um, I mean, I specialize with vintage costumes. But then for me, using that onto my, the work that I do, I mean, it came after I had like problems with how my audience reacted before with my work because it was not so easy to digest. So I came up with like this method of using fashion to make it to be light in a way. And exactly how is it hard for the audience to digest? What aspect of what you were doing on the streets was was creating this reaction for the audience, do you think? I mean, the visuals, I mean, with me, I, for ex- an example, when I talk about someone who was stabbed or bent, I really have to show it and not to explain it in a way, but try to show it. So, I mean, that's maybe the the other thing that makes it uh, a bit um, hard for people to digest. Are you describing like a violence in your work or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you were performing as a street artist at first, did you ever feel that you should tone down this this message, this these themes that you're exploring in your performance so that the audience wouldn't react adversely or was it really this is what I have to say, this is what I need to talk about? Yeah, after some time having like talks with Femedi and they were a bit, I mean, they were a bit worried about um, where is it going to take me, you know, the way, the approach, I mean, to how I do my works. I mean, after some times I really did understand from them that, uh, I mean, I should really tone down like the volume of how I create. So, I mean, fashion, it was the only way for me that I could use and really try to easy things down like you were talking a bit about Pensula which is uh, a dance that is born out of resistance to oppression mm-hmm. and exactly how did this start like around do you know around what time it started did it emerge really organically or was it something that really became that was created out of thin air the way I was told by my grandfather I mean this dance it was a dance that came after campus dance in which like it was a dance that was being done in the mines because people they were not allowed to talk whilst working because of I mean they had like lives after work I mean for them they were not going to be able to dance with gumboots in the clubs or in the shippings so they started to form a dance out of that dance that could work in the shippings so it became Pansola, but before it became so popular in the late sixties, uh, early seventies. I mean, it was called just jive because I mean, during the apartheid, any dance that was coming from the black community, it was called jive. You were not allowed to call it dance, so it was just jive before the Pansola called it. Uh, before the Botswana cult, uh, tribe called it Pansola. And why exactly was it forbidden to use dance as a descriptive? I guess it was because of the system, you know, mm-hmm. that people, they were, I mean, they were only told to do things like in this way. In a way, it was this colonial approach, approach. That, that just said, well, dance is not for you people in a way, or it's not for when you're working, you cannot... You cannot talk. Okay. Yeah. 
uh, after you know learning about Pansula and everything, have you also found uh, your way towards other dances that were born out of oppression in the, in the same way that Pamela was mentioning that for her she developed a big interest in in other dances of the sort? I mean, after some after years of um, teaching Pansula in communities uh, in community centers. I, I mean, I found that like a method in a way that um, it works for me and what I want to really like address. Because for me, I mean, it's really not about just dance that I want to teach in the workshop, then it ends there. Or, but it's more of like also the philosophy and like the lifestyle behind it. So people, they could really understand. I mean, for instance, I mean, Pam, she's from Canada. I'm from Soweto, I mean, and... She really doesn't have an idea of what's happening really in Soviet, you know. But then I have to invite her to come onto my world, you know, through this process of a workshop or Pansula. And this philosophy that's that's behind it or that's above it in a way, um, could you tell us a bit about it? What what exactly is this philosophy? It, it seems very far-reaching. It seems to be about so many different aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, after after the independence of uh, our country, when Mandela became a, pres- a first bless- black president of South Africa, because of, I mean, he was aware in a way of uh, the trauma that has been going on before he came onto power, that it might somehow affect his leadership. He introduced like this Ubuntu culture in which like it was only existing on black families that, I mean, we should now really stop it, like, to... It should really become, like, a thing of everyone, not, like, only a culture that exists amongst black. So it was more of, like, blacks and white and people of any skin color, they they should, like, communicate to each other and... Just earlier, uh, before we turned on the microphones, Pamela was describing a bit of what happened in that workshop. I'm wondering, from your perspective, if you could let us know uh, what happens physically mm-hmm. when you're when you're passing along this dance to another person. The way I start, we all start outside with an idea of like when we come on space, we are one. And I, I mean, I try to make it clear from the beginning that. We are going to start outside, and if maybe you are worried about this dance, that you are doing it for the first time, or you won't be able to catch up with steps, I mean, you should just leave that outside the door, then I'm also, as a teacher, a new person, like, you know, I'm like you guys, you know. Then we go into class. Then we start with this ritual of Koresa. Koresa is a dance that it's it's for all generations, and it happens during like ritual ceremonies and um, funerals, I mean, sometimes after funerals and stuff, whereby, I mean, it's a four-sided dance and it's very simple. And, and I mean, after sometimes everyone can catch that dance and then we dance that dance with an idea of being social also. We dance whilst we talk about what was what was happening to you this morning and, you know, yeah. And for Tigvatamba, um, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the the soldier of peace uh, persona in a way that that is really put forth in, in the work. And this seems to be very much about reaching out to people and in this very human sense of going towards people and spreading a message. And what exactly would that message be? Like, what was exactly 
that you wanted to pass on to other people when you started creating the piece? Well, Tikva Temba is, is actually a three-part mission that we've developed. It starts in the streets. There's a street patrolling mission. There's also the workshops, and there's also the live performance. And in each of the and each of these elements, the idea is to put together webisodes from each of these interventions and create a dialogue where we can talk about what's going on in the world in terms of the unnecessary gun violence, racial profiling, the divide between us, the lack of eye contact we have between people. So Tikva Temba isn't necessarily trying to to impose a message or a solution. We actually are about raising awareness and provoking dialogue and confronting the actual situation of what's going on in many different places around the world. We developed a soldier of peace personae who essentially patrol the streets to serve and protect the peace. We use love and sending out love to connect with people. We also use fashion and humor to connect with people. You know, we also use dance to connect with people. So the idea with the Soldiers of Peace is that you know, a lot actually to go back when we first started to dialogue about what we were going to create for Peace Day Live, we were in Greece at the time of the financial crisis and where we were staying in Ex- Exaria, um, it's more of an immigrant neighborhood in Greece, and there were about 10 police officers on every street corner ready for war with, you know, shields, helmets, the whole shebang. And it was quite a peaceful neighborhood, if you ask me. I mean, I felt very, very safe there. I didn't feel like anything was wrong. I felt more in fear of the police that were patrolling the corners than I did of the actual people that were living and I was communicating with and became friends with. Um, you know, every time I walked by the police officers, I, I'd tense up and feel like I was doing something wrong or I had to make sure that I wasn't going to, like, piss them off. or somebody. And I, we just, I just we started talking. I'm like, why, you know, are these people who are supposed to be keeping us safe making me feel so uneasy, you know, and so full of fear? You know, and like, why do the authority figures provoke fear in us? Why is fear such a common factor? Why are we more comfortable sitting on a train, fearing looking at each other in the eyes rather than engaging in eye contact with each other? Like, what is going on in our world that we're so scared to look at each other? You know, and where is that coming from? And how can we address that? And how can we change it? I mean, I'm a very, very smiley person. I have no, <laughs> I have no choice but to be smiling all the time, and I. I'm like that, and I'm constantly confronted with, I I smile at people, and either people, they don't know how to take it, or they think that I'm being weird, or I'm funny. It's it's a very odd thing to, you know, not be able to smile at each other. And so, you know, we started to think, well, what if we, I mean, it wasn't so, it didn't happen so strategically, it kind of, it actually happened very organically, but we started to get these costumes, and we dressed up as soldiers, and we had these vision, this vision of having these guns that shoot flowers out of them, and then I started, you know, I was like, well, maybe we can, you know, Sofiso makes a lot of costumes out of newspaper, so that inspired me. We got a bunch of newspaper, and got some cardboard, and rolled up some cardboard, and figured out a way to make these giant bazooka guns that shoot flowers out of them and so then we started walking the streets with our police outfit or our soldier uniforms with Fisher Price police helmets and these guns and we started to just act we did it more of as a performance art where we you know just would actually stand in a in a square with these outfits on and people would just walk by us and look at us and you know examine us as though we were statues they couldn't understand you know what these these guns with flowers were and we couldn't speak the language in Greece so that was a different experience 
experience as well. We couldn't explain what we were doing either, so we did it in more of a way where people could really just take the time to look at us and examine us and, and get their own, um, create their own dialogue, and they would start dialoguing within themselves about what was going on. And then we started to actually patrol the streets. We started to walk around the streets shooting these guns out at people. You know, and that would first people would be very scared and then they see the guns and they laugh and it actually just like broke down this wall between us and people would start talking to us, people would laugh at us, people would even start dancing with us. When we did it in Israel, we got a little bit more loose with it where we would start even dancing, like doing these little dances before we shoot the guns out. You know, and the, it, it just really became a way that we quickly could get through the wall that people have up make people look at us because at the same time people in their initial reaction is that we're real soldiers they really thought we were soldiers they really think like even yesterday when we're patrolling in Paris I walked into a store to get some a napkin and the owner of the the bar was like well you're a police officer aren't you and I was like yes I'm a police of love you know and I shot my flowers out at him and he started laughing and the reactions are just are actually incredible you know people are really saying like how we really need to address these issues even the police officers would say you know they'd say well we're legally we're not allowed to keep you in these jurisdictions or the, these neighborhoods these areas so I have to tell you to move elsewhere but I really love what you're doing it's really original we re- really need to talk about it thank you for doing this people are thanking us and so we started to really realize the importance of addressing this and how you know we are being silenced as a people and we do actually have control as a people as well to take it upon ourselves and decide how we want to patrol the streets you know I think one of the concepts that have really emerged for me in creating this piece is the idea that you know as a citizen we have both duties and privileges and if we you know we as I find as citizens have high expectations for what our privileges are or demand our privileges yet we've decided to give our duties to the workers or the people around you know there's the garbage men that pick up our garbage there's the police officers that keep the streets safe there's the firemen that you know will um, get the cat out of the tree and you know put out the fire and yes those workers are very very important and very necessary however we as citizens still have duties as human beings to work with the community and if you know if your neighbor is in help you know you can still go and help them i live in brooklyn now and you know just outside my house my roommate was telling me the story there was somebody fighting outside and they were they were fighting they're fighting they're fighting and everybody in the neighborhood was just kind of looking at it just staring like not doing anything until he and one of the other neighbors who are part of this have this ubuntu energy and and philosophy came out and broke up the fight themselves you know where everyone else was like call the police call the police it's like you know what this is our community we know this brother and that brother why do we need to call the police who are going to arrest these two cats throw them in jail and put them in jail where they're not going to they're going to be decreasing in their in their growth rather than developing with us within the community so it's really that question is like how we as citizens can take on the duties ourselves and the responsibility that we have to keep the peace within our own community and how can we teach our children how to be and how can we talk to our children about how to be how can we create good role models for our children good role models where we live the Ubuntu philosophy where we look at everybody in the eyes and give everybody the respect that they deserve no matter what they look like or where they come from and you know really be accepting to the differences and and enjoy the differences that we share you know me and Sufis are extremely different extremely different the way we create our backgrounds what 
we've seen how we're treated. You know, going through Israel is very different how I'm treated versus how he's treated. You know, how the border crossings allow me to go through versus give him a problem. The problems he no longer has when I'm standing next to him. You know, there's a lot of realities that we're facing in the differences of the skin color we have, yet our souls are the same. You know, and we were connected uh, creatively and spiritually in another level. So, you know, that in itself, visually, I think we're a, a an expression of this this philosophy as well. Were there any, any times when you felt that this reappropriation of militaristic imagery created problems with people? You, you mentioned that people would sometimes think that you're real po police officers, but did you ever feel that there were powers that be that were very displeased with that? Or did you ever feel that people thought that you were mocking and they disagreed with the, this mocking of militaristic attitudes? Definitely. In in Israel, we, we came across a lot of police officers that stopped us and, you know, at first they, they, they're very, you know, they come all, you know, heavy chested, very like ready to kick us out or arrest us or whatever. And there's like, can we please see your passports? What are you doing? You know, and we actually had met um, this, a white soldier who does also an artist who does a similar piece where he's dressed up all in white. But we had met with him before and he told us a little bit of our rights because he'd had experiences with the police. So he told us that when the police come to us to ask them for their ID identification as well. So when they asked for our passport, we'd say, well, sure, you know, here's our passport, can we please have your ID as well? Which just that, you know, makes them, puts them a little bit into their place, and they say, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And we say, well, we're, we're, keep, we're patrolling to keep the peace. <laughs> or, you know, we're serving and protecting the peace. We'd say something like that. And they just get totally confused because, you know, that's what they're doing, right? And, and actually, we would even go further into it. We'd say, we're, we're here to serve and protect the peace, and we'd actually shoot flowers at their face and, from our guns, <laughs> which to them was just, you know, how can you not laugh <laughs> when you're a police officer holding this giant M16 and some, like, two, you know, Mutt and Jeff come over here with their, their guns and shoot these flowers at you, you know? So they start laughing but are not allowed to laugh, so they quickly, like, come, come back to their, you know, strong aggressive face expressions and you know try and find something on us and they can't you know at one point they were like is this a real gun that grabs Saviso's gun is this a real gun are you are you a are you a police officer in your country because Saviso's really he looks really good like he looks really good with his gun I don't know if good's the right word but he <laughs> he has a very natural um I guess he I don't know if you it's if you want to speak about the gun experience. suits you I guess. I wouldn't say it suits him. I think it's just maybe his experience. He's witnessed a lot of soldiers with guns, maybe. I don't know. It's maybe something more comfortable in your world. I, my, me, I've like I never played with guns as a kid. To me, this the whole experience of holding guns is very against my whole being. You know, I grew up when my mom would never let us have guns, and I also agree with that like I, I never would give my kids guns we never even played with water guns like guns was just like no you know my mom would always not like hate movies where there's guns and I, I mean I definitely had mixed feelings about it like I really I love Quentin Tarantino's movies in the way that they you know really <laughs> hit it far you know they take they take a 
confront issues in a really extreme way, you know, and there's a humor to it, but they're also very intense and very powerful because you're like, wow, this is actually, you know, he's making this huge joke ab- about it, but it actually happened, you know, and so it's, I think, is a, is a, is a powerful way of addressing an issue. Um, so anyway, so me, it's very hard to hold this gun and to shoot a kid with a gun and all these things is a very emotional experience. Um, but yet something that I think is also an important process to work through because it's a reality. I mean, even in Paris, we'd walk around and there's police everywhere and soldiers everywhere, huge guns, you know, and they're holding, they're like holding the trigger, like ready to shoot. And there's nothing going on in Paris. It For me, it just felt like they were just, you know, showing off their money or something. You know, it was a little bit of that. It was just like, oh, look at all of our military. Look at all of our police officers. Look at our big guns. Can you speak to the the importance that I'm hearing of uh, of body language uh, when you talk about the eyes, making eye contact, when you talk about situations where you don't necessarily speak the same language as someone, mm-hmm. you're talking about just just um, a posture of, of either, you know, defense or, or aggression. It, it seems to be a, th- a running theme in what you're talking about. And I guess I'm trying to make the connection back towards uh, the performance aspect of what you do mm. and yeah and, and where body language plays a role in your philosophy and and, and, and your work definitely um, the body language is really important when we're patrolling the streets I find every person that I shoot my love gun at I'm <laughs> I'm actually I actually adjust how I approach them and how I shoot the gun at them and I make I make a lot of mistakes you know and I learn from every one of those mistakes as we do in life um, like you misinterpret how it will be I, I you know I yeah I may say I may see somebody that I feel like I want to shoot the gun at because um, they're looking at me but I maybe do it too quickly and they don't see the humor in it at all and or, or, or I'll really scare them like really scare them and that really pisses them off like we've had a few people give us fingers or you know and, and that's like I can literally count on one hand how many people we've really offended so I think we've we we, ha- we aren't too bad about it but I definitely you have to be really sensitive you really have to be very open to all the energy in the air and everybody you know a lot of it is especially in Paris I mean that's just the most recent patrolling we've done so it's very present in my mind people in Paris <laughs> there's a lot going on a lot of a lot of creativity a lot of busyness a lot of art a lot of great fashion but, you know people have a lot of frowns you know a lot of frowns in the street and so that was you know essentially we're like this is our mission we got you know we're going out to address those frowns I mean that was what I kind of set myself to and so you know in that I, I had to find my my way to to make them see me even because people won't even see even if you're dressed up like a police officer and I have a giant gun they still wouldn't even look at me you know so I kind of have to like sneak my way or do a little dance that gets their attention and then spin and shoot it at them and it makes them laugh and and you know then makes them open to talk to me as well and so it did provoke a lot of dialogue I got and I can speak French so that was fabulous because I could really dialogue with people and hear their opinions of, of what's going on you know, and there's some people, actually, one of the techniques that I've really incorporated a lot into the Soldier of Peace persona is the the idea of mimicking and um, reflecting society. It's something that I learned from the Masquerade Society in Nigeria, which is uh, essentially there are these, 
it's a it's a society of men that go around and patrol the streets and they're masked characters and it's a it's a traditional way that of policing in in Nigeria it's the way that people are addressed there the bad and the good going on in society so they do it by by means of mirroring what's going on so often like all mirror somebody if they're standing there just you know some, there's somebody standing there with their arms crossed all pissed off at the bus station whatever I might go up to them like that as well and then shoot the flower and make them laugh or somebody's on their phone I might like pretend I'm on the phone or somebody's walking with their umbrella we might you know do 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 and then psh, so it allows people to also see themselves reflecting reflection of themselves and I mean I According to my own perspective in terms of like patrolling and performing in different countries, I mean, the history as a background, it's also so important, you know, because I mean, the peace when we did it in Greece and when we went to Israel and Palestine, it had like a different meaning, you know, even though we were doing the same thing like we did in Greece to Israel and Palestine. And now Paris, it became also a completely different world yeah so i mean it it always has to do with um the history you know of that culture and yeah yeah the history and the present situation i think as well mm -hmm. i'm curious how it's going to be patrolling in quebec and in montreal just especially what's been going on a lot with the manifestations and um you know when we birthed the piece also i just left quebec right at the time when the whole you know, the, the, the one for uh, student protests. Yeah, yeah, what was it? Anyway, anyway that law. Anyway, when the, the whole like Red Square and, you know, there was a lot of manifestations and protests in the street was going on and there was a lot of police brutality going on that was very unusual for Quebec. So that also was an inspiration behind um, this piece. But yeah, definitely people are more sensitive and less sensitive and more used to in it. In Israel and in Palestine, people are used to soldiers being everywhere. So we were people were very like intrigued by what we were doing in Tel Aviv and in Jaffa um, people were really thanking us for doing this because they're so people have become so apathetic to soldiers walking around with guns that it's become it's so common and so everyday and familiar that they've forgotten that that's even that even should be questioned or that you know why are there guns everywhere and you know what it is to even just have a flower gun and you know it, the the piece is an open dialogue i think that's really really key and um we don't have the answers you know there's so much trouble going on in the world right now we, we we're not here to say this is the way it has to be um but we are here to question we are here to address it and um and to to create a community and a movement you know of like i just you know i write this a lot like i have a dream that all the po police and all the soldiers patrolled with love rather than fear you know and what what would that mean what would that look like what would our world look like if that was the case and will you be bringing your uh, soldiers of love persona um in montreal soon you, you mentioned yes is there any way we can know where to find you is there <laughs> any like select locations that will be visited <laughs> or do we just have to go around the city and try to find you? <laughs> we might try and find you. <laughs> If you have a big frown, you might get addressed. <laughs> so people who are listening, make sure to frown for the coming weeks. <laughs> and that way you might be visited by the soldiers of love, of peace. Well, peace, love, pretty much all, all of that. All that police of love, soldiers of peace, whichever. I mean, 
the the name actually came to us in Israel when um, we were. It was funny. We were actually I had to get an iPad, <laughs> so we were at we were at the Mac store in in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Super random, but we were dressed. We were ready to patrol because we were going to patrol that entire day. Um, it was just the start of, start point, and so we were there in our soldier outfits, looking at an iPad, and this this guy came up to us, and in Hebrew was like, "Excuse me, excuse me, um, are you guys real soldiers?" And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Yeah, because you guys are like, you know, you're really, you're really soldiers of peace. You guys look like soldiers of peace." And we're like, "Yes, we are soldiers of peace." He's like, "Wow, that's amazing. How many are you? How many of the, of you are there in the world?" We're like, "Well, right now we're two, but soon there'll be more." It was it was nice in Hebrew. It was um, "Yecholim leshalom," "Yecholim leshalom," or something like that. It was just. Anyway, so it was birthed right there. Speaking of language and peace, can you break apart uh, Tikva Timba for us? Tikva, it's in Hebrew. It means hope. And Timba, it's a Zulu word. It also means hope. Beautiful. Now, you do have the Monument National booked with, uh, through Tangent. So what's happening there? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're booked for, we have a 50-minute performance at the Monument National on the 26th, 27th, 28th, and 29th of September. And that is the choreography we created. We didn't actually speak about this, but we have a choreography as the Soldiers of Peace that we do, that we've done in site-specific areas. So we've done it in Greece, and we've done it, we've done it in, in Israel and in Palestine. And we just, we done, we've done it outside, usually in site-specific locations. So now we've been booked in a theater, which is taking the piece to the next level, where we're working with um, just stronger imagery and having a more controlled environment with lighting and music. Um, where we'll be performing a adapted version of that piece, and it's um, it's inspired by military drills, police stances, um, using both of our backgrounds as pensula dancer and break dancer, and just a dancer and just dancers in general, um, movers, using music and sound, using some humor, using yeah many different things to really provoke this dialogue even further. And I mean, we, now with the piece, the only difference is that, I mean, with the patrols and the performance on the street, we were not so on to the point, you know, with what it's really happening and what's really, what is it that it's pushing us to do this, you know? So now we are more direct with this work. Mm. So, I mean, in this work, what should you, you expect? It's like uh, you should expect reality, joke, pain, and trauma. So it's... It's those stages that we, we really want to to make a point mm. with them. And really, I th- really about leadership, mm-hmm. question of leadership. Who are our leaders? Who have been our leaders? And uh, who do we want to be our leaders? What, how, how can we envision leaders to look like in our future? Yes. Can you throw out a couple uh, artistic um, inspirations for each of you? That, that might inform your work or might not? I mean, for me, it's quite the opposite because, I mean, what inspires me and what I'm doing is like completely two opposite things. Mm-hmm. I mean, me, I was, I mean, my work, it's, it still has a the strong um, background or philosophy of how my father used to do things as a mechanic, you know? Mm-hmm. And he never went to school to study to fix a car and stuff. And he also did sculptures out of, like, the parts, you know, of the engine. And 
Yeah. For me, I've been very inspired. Actually, living in the streets of Brooklyn <laughs> has been a lot of. I mean, it's new for me, and I've been training and dancing in the park a lot, and how that's attracted kids to me and the new relationships I've developed with these kids, and the lack of love that I'm seeing these kids are receiving, and the importance of love, and the reality of how far we are away from unconditionally loving each other, and how that how we, we've been very selective with our love and we've been taught to be very selective with our love that to me has been a huge question and a huge reality yeah I mean I think reality is what I my eyes are my big inspiration right now just what I'm seeing everywhere I travel a lot and I'm seeing a lot of the same situations same issues and it all comes down to love Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we've been speaking with Pamela Schneider and Sefiso Seleme, and you two are presenting Tikva Themba here at the Monument National as part of Tangente's programming. And those shows are the 26th, 27th, and the 28th of September at 7.30 with a matinee at 4 p.m. on the following Sunday, the 29th. Is there more we can expect from you guys this week? Well, this week we will be out patrolling the streets at some point, so you may see us running by as soldiers of peace. And uh, we love the dialogue, so please come and talk to us. And the following week after the performance, we will be doing workshops. The exact location is still to be determined and where and when and how. So we also are looking for ideas if people have community centers or classes or this and that where they are interested in bringing Pensula, even this, the Tikva Temba workshop to their community center. We are very interested in giving this workshop and we have two available. We have the Pensula workshop. We also have the Tikva Temba workshop and the Tikva Temba workshop uses a lot of the Pensula philosophy and way of directing. We also include in that where we develop soldiers of peace ourselves we everybody makes their own love gun and at the end of the workshop we do a patrolling as a group in the streets so we are looking for hosts of this workshop so anyone that knows anyone please contact us do you have a, a website or an email address or something yeah it's tikva temba is our facebook Perfect. um so it's that's yeah t-i-k-v-a-h next word is T-H-E-M-B-A. Yeah, it's actually one word. Okay, on the, it's one word, on the yeah. website. Okay, great. Um, so there's that. There's also, we. Uh, this is actually very important. <laughs> we are doing an Indiegogo campaign where we are raising funds. So we are raising funds for this performance to enhance the costumes and to help us develop the video and this and that. However, we also, if we can continue to raise funds, we would like to take this piece around the world. So with every dollar that we make, we will be hiring a team to help support the, the, the world tour of Teak Temba so that we can do these workshops in different places around the world. And on that Indiegogo, we can also become part of the community so that we can, if you have ideas of where we can do the workshops in the different cities, if you know of different community centers or theaters that would be interested in this work, you can contact us. And there's monetary help, but also you know, helping us find different connections and contacts so we can take it to different places would be great. Do you already have a next destination? Oh, South Africa, I hope. Yeah, South Africa uh, needs... I think South Africa will be the, the next destination. Yeah. So the, Tikva, uh, the Indiegogo website is IgG, 
dot m e slash a t slash tikva temba t i k v a h t h e m b a. Great. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Awesome. In studio with us now is one of our favorite return guests on Dirty Feet. Uh, we had him on our seventh episode way back when. Uh, this is George Stamos. Hello, George. Hello. We had you on with Aaron Flynn before. We talked about a lot of different things. We talked about dance and choreography, and uh, it's tended to kind of center around teaching back then. Yeah, we that's were discussing. right. Yeah. yeah. I remember that episode very well, and if you haven't listened to it already, listeners, go back and uh, and check it out. Uh, you have a brilliant mind, and we're so excited to have you in studio oh, thank again. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Uh, this time, the context is uh, a choreography of yours called Lick Lick Pick. Correct. And uh, it's a piece that you choreographed, and you're also performing in alongside Danny Desjardins. Yeah. Now... Let's do a real quick recap on who you are, just in case we have okay. people coming in who haven't heard uh, our episode with you in the past, who don't know who you are. Uh, you're a well-known choreographer here in Montreal. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, your background, your training, some of the drop some names that you worked with and all that oh, rest? Um, well, I've worked with, as a dancer, I've worked with a lot of different people, and so I won't get into that so much but um i uh I, so i'm from nova scotia originally i um moved around a lot in my formative years i um went to school in um amsterdam at the school for new dance development um i quite early in my career decided that i wanted to be a choreographer and a dancer. In fact, actually I wanted to be a choreographer for a long time and then I went back to wanting to do choreography and dance when i lived in new york for four years, uh, where I did a lot of solo work and worked for um, dance companies there. And then 15 years ago, I moved to Montreal, and I've worked with a lot of um, contemporary choreographers here and been doing my own work um, pretty much seasonally, being presented at theaters um, and uh, in Montreal. And now I'm currently working with uh, Nyeta Nyeta, a contemporary African dance company under the direction of Zab Mambangu, and uh, that's a really great experience for me, continuing to learn as a dancer, which is really exciting and and keeps me inspired, and um, working on um, you know um, just keeping moving forward and evolving in my career and staying open to new influences and uh, and looking at what I've done in the past and how to bring that into the present. And uh, this duo with Danny is. Um, kind of a good example of that in terms of a lot of the the research I've done into gender and the consideration of gender and how it plays on stage. Um, this is the first uh, piece I've made with just guys as a cast. Um, I've done a lot of work with women, uh, with really incredible, talented, strong, interesting women that I've collaborated with as performers in my work. And I've often, um, well, I've always kind of um, been aware of the history of the representation of the female body on stage and considered that in um, when there's things like nudity or or sensual moments or um, for me it's kind of unavoidable unavoidable as something to consider uh, as I work um, and in the context of the kind of gender roles that are continu- that are still actually um, 
present it in contemporary dance on stage, I feel it's necessary to present uh, other options or or to uh, sort of update the way that we see gender in contemporary dance in Montreal. So I became interested um, with this project in at the start of how could I re-examine my choreography with a male cast. What is it? What's the difference? between the same material being performed by the male body or the female body. How does, how does it change the reading? And that's kind of was the starting point of this project. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to work with Danny, I have to say. It's, um, even though we do get into some kind of um, some darker or some, some, some more serious moments and issues that come out in the piece, there's a, there is a real lightness to it and a real playfulness to it that is really fun to do and I think it's a positive experience for the audience. <laughs> this previous material that was on female bodies, is that was that the same work or is it Well the very sort of starting point for this uh, project was I had a piece called Cloak that was a duet and um, I between myself and um, Luciani Pinto and Clara Furry before that. And um, I was I had the opportunity to to remount the work, but I had a good relationship with the the presenter who was inviting me, and I discussed um, the possibility of actually adapting the work for an, in a new context with Danny, and so I started going in looking at like how can we take some of the existing material and play with it, and what what's the new reading, and then it very quickly took on sort of a life of its own and became a new piece. Although there's some uh, there's some similarities in terms of the the props that we use and and some of the video effect that's used was used in Cloak is also used in Lick Lick Pick, but it became this really new piece with its own identity as well. In the program, in this in the description of the piece, uh, you meant you mentioned the use of the um, the pig as a totem animal. Yeah. What about this one in the first place? Because it is uh, <coughs> there is so many connotations with the pig, and what exactly were the ones that first got you interested in using that that pig as totem animal? Well, I think exactly the fact that there is there are the different um, sides to the way that the pig is what the pig represents is what attracted me, and and the the three little pigs as a fairy tale, yeah, as a story, um, is what was interesting to me to where there's a sort of cuteness but then there's also this brutality that goes on there and then also how that plays out for for men and sexuality too i find interesting in terms of like a um you know like a male chauvinist pig for example um or in gay culture like if you're if you're like piggy or you're into pig sex that's kind of like positive right like so there's this it's very like complex terrain to kind of dig into especially in a duet with a guy so yeah all that i found really interesting the title of the work lick lick pig translates directly into little pig uh yeah. in pig pigeon King? english uh from papua new guinea okay where yeah. where does that come from well i did initially in the research i did this research into like different storytellings um and into uh and i found different you know depictions of of uh the three little pigs and i found this um version of a broadcast of the three little pigs that had been put out in papua new guinea um in pidgin english so you can recognize you know it's got a relation to english you can recognize like 
like little pig, lick, lick, pig. Um, there's similarities, but then there's this other rhythmic content that's there. And um, so I was really interested in in how the sort of cross-cultural thing that was going on in that with that and how you could um, still feel the the European uh, influence of the story and also the uh, the language, but then you had this sort of other world, um, other perspective on with the rhythm and also just the cultural reference of Papua New Guinea is is pretty you know enticing and interesting to me. So I, that just caught my attention right away. Not that I really got into going into their culture so much. Does it inform kind of the sonar experience of the work as well? Yeah, it's actually part of the so- the soundtrack. The this the in the piece you do hear um, excerpts of the the the, the broadcast of click 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 by the announcer. So you hear the you hear the language in the show. You hear click 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 click. And was it also uh, influential in the imagery that was being used in the piece, or did, did you? Because you mentioned you didn't really touch the the cultural aspect of uh, Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. but are there elements that you feel were more typical or representative of what you know of the culture that you brought into this, the visual aspect of the show? Uh, no, you stayed away from that. Well, I mean, I'm I'm looking at. Oh, sort of a world context too, and so I mean, like there are certain things that are universal, like food, uh, rhythms. So there are things that are cross-cultural that are there. That, uh, but I didn't do a deep study into the piece. is not about Papua New Guinea culture. But you mentioned that um, there are things that are more universal, such as food and and rhythmic, rhythmical qualities. Yeah. But even then, there are. Um, there are taboos which are really uh, specific to some cultures, especially when it comes to food. Is that, is that is that something that you're exploring? You know, our approach to food is going to be different in many different cultures. Um, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're well, saying. Well, I mean, you look at some uh, cultures where there is force feeding of people, uh-huh. uh, or or some in some cultures where food and abundance represents wealth. Whereas in other cultures, like in North America, where food, you know, the people's approach to food can be very unhealthy sometimes with things like um, anorexia and bulimia. So food is something that is not completely universal in a way. It, it, it's something well, that we all have to gonna, eat to live. Yes, but our relationship to, to food is going to be different based on the culture we come from sometimes. Yeah, I would just say that my viewpoint on this uh, topic that we're talking about is that we're living in multiple cultures. I think we can't say that there's a predominant North American culture, really, in a way. I think there's a multiplicity of cultures and communities that that exists. And I think um, that all of those things that you just mentioned are are things that could exist here or in other cultures. countries as well so that's why it's universal <laughs> because it does so i um are you t- i don't know what you're asking really well basically i'm asking I, i'm saying i'm pointing out that people's approach to food is not going to be just one thing it's not one through line that goes through all of the cultures you mentioned we all need to eat but our perception of of this of food uh, of subsistence is going to be different 
you know, it, it's not always the same thing, I guess. No, not even in different audiences that you might find in Montreal mm-hmm. or, or different members of the audience in Montreal. But what I can say is that the interest that I have in the food reference here is about um, the sensory, sensory influence and also it's directly related to this idea of gluttony and um, how that relates to masculinity and certain kind of stereotypes about men and... Um, like men as sort of like uh, consumers and who, you know, basically control the world. And uh, this kind of like, a, yeah, these stereotypes of men that relate to it, speak to a kind of truth to that I reveal in the, in the work. And then often, like in most of my work, what I'm doing is I'm putting issues out there um, so that they can be discussed and revealed and hopefully expand the way that we think about um, some of these things instead of narrow them. So that's the role of food. So there's a multiplicity always. It's not, it's not about just this one thing. There, there are other lines going on. So when you talk about food and pleasure, you know, you can talk about um, there's positives and negatives to that, right? And did you approach food in a way as a metaphorical representation for sex also? Oh, well, I don't need to approach it. It's already it's like that. It's very present. Yeah. So <laughs> so it's there's there's that. Yeah. For for sex but also for play, you know, or for celebration and for ritual. I think food plays that role in most cultures that I've found know about. That's one of the universal aspects of it that I was talking about. So, yeah. In the promotional images for the show, I see uh, these pig masks. And uh, thinking yes. back to Husk as well, you played a lot with masks. So uh, what's going on there? What do they do for you? As well, I've worked with masks since, like, uh, like, since the beginning of my choreographies. I've done a lot of mask work. Mm-hmm. Mask work is, uh, there. there's many different ways that you can approach it. Um, the way that I tend to approach it is, uh, and that I approach it in this piece, is it sort of just tri- primarily two tracks to it. One is that by putting a mask on, you can become actually more about the body. So you're actually taking the attention away from the social convention and the social personage of, of the body, and which is transmitted through the face and character in a lot of ways. And so the emphasis becomes on the body and the information that the body itself carries. So you kind of effectively, you know, very directly cover the face and, and then so that the body can speak more and have its own agency and its own language um, can, can be more directly transmitted. There's that. And then there's also something about, in a way, by becoming, um, by pretending to become animals, I think it's a way that we can become more human, actually, and we can actually address certain human tendencies that might normally be pushed into a kind of a, oh, well, that's, again, not the social way to be, you know, so it's, it's the, it's like, oh, they're such an animal, you know, well, in fact, when we're being such an animal, animal, perhaps we're being more human. So we, we pretend to become animals so that we can be more human. And when it comes to the movement for the piece, how, how exactly did you structure the movement? Did it just naturally emerge or was a lot of it taken from cloak? Uh, the movement. Um, there's certain materials that were taken from cloak, but then 
it re- there's a lot of new um, stuff, and then it was really about what took over is this play between Danny and, and I, um, which I think opened up as a result of us being two guys, too, because I think you can go into a much more playful place with two guys um, or two women even then I think the male female duet is just it's it's so loaded and continually there's this these very old representations of male female relationships that just are put on the stage that just sort of um take over you know so it kind of opens it up to have two guys because they can be brotherly there can be sensual moments but then you can right away into another thing it's not a romantic thing necessarily you don't have to address that like you do with a male female so so working with Danny new avenues opened up and new material arrived and also the material that uh, was existing previously got to be reinvented and re and and uh, you know made richer in a way like I think m- m- most choreographers reference themselves in, in a piece and like it's not unusual in fact um, almost every work I've seen by a choreographer is containing elements of a previous work it's kind of a natural thing so that was part of this project as well I'm going to use the excuse that we're talking about transposing work to uh, ask you about your experience with the with Ladni and taking your work Husk and giving oh, right. it to the students there because that was true to your work more so than this kind of evolution that we're talking about now. What was that like? Well, actually, that was Morial Dance that transmitted oh, uh, the piece okay. to them, so and I didn't were, I, actually spend that much time with the students. Okay, it was. Um, the, that was that's interesting in terms of it was the interpreters of Morial Dance that taught them their mm. their yes. uh, their roles, which is a different process than had I been more present. I mean, I was I was there <laughs> for for a few weeks, but uh, so I was it was it was a little different than had I gone in and. Um, and worked and, with and the worked more students. with just the students, yeah. So it was it was a Morial Dance project that, that uh, yeah. But I mean, I loved working with the students in the time that I did, and I thought they did a really great job, and I was really happy to, you know, to let the piece and the project have that that other kind of um, extension, you know. Did it so, show you something about your work to see it? done in that context with these younger interpreters well i mean what it tells what it shows me about the work is the way i the way i work or the way i was working <laughs> um is also that um i'm i in that project it was very particular to the the interpreters so the direction that i gave one interpreter might not nece- necessarily be the same as another so they're they're going in with what they got, but whereas if I was there, I might particularly like it was very personal the way that I worked on that piece with um, the dancers of Morial Dance, and um, that project has actually uh, evolved even because the thing the thing about it was very it was really quite complicated <laughs> <laughs> because I was in the work. Okay. And then I couldn't be in the work before the premiere because of a conflict of dates. Okay. And so then I was I changed I gave my role to Fred uh um Marie, and then he then taught what I taught him. So it was kind of this game of like if you you Pass know it back and pa- forth. Yeah, passing it back and forth. So it was it was that kind of a process. You were talking earlier about um showing movement on 
male and female and how it's different. Yeah. Um, now that you're dancing with only one male, which I guess you were saying it's the first time that you're the first time that's been just only men. Yeah. So how how do they approach movement differently, or how do they portray it differently apart from the obvious female female male female body? Sorry, how? Well, I don't even know if it's an approach that's different, but the reading is different, which. Because I think everybody's different, and there might be very you know similarities between men and women, and then yeah. So I don't so I don't know that it's about the approach approach necessarily, but I think when we see a female body on stage, we're because of the history and the excess of the way that the female body has been used to sell products and objectified. I think that we're confronted right away with how sexy is she? How does she compare to other females? Mm -hmm. well, um, what's We put we have this we have this kind of um, for lack of a better example Britney Spears model to to then right away compare with which interferes in the direct transmission of that f woman's body and I think it's I think it's something that um, I've spoken about this with uh, female artists and I mean it's a it can be frustrating f uh, for um, female artists because it's like I, I know I've heard. Some of my um, friends also talk about how they have to. They feel like they have to purposefully make themselves ugly in a way to just to get away from it because it's like it becomes a trap very quickly. This sort of like the seductress female on stage. So it it it's complicated, right? Because of the way the female body's been used. Whereas the male body doesn't have that baggage. It it um it can be kind of about more directly the dancer and what their what the actions are we don't right away go okay well oh okay if we see a man if we see a a man lifting a chair and moving it over there oh he's lifting the chair and he's moving it over there if we see the woman lifting the chair and moving it over there oh well she's not being she's deciding that she's not going to be britney spears and she's moving the chair over there, right so that that's more what i'm talking about you find that female dancers are judged more than oh i think women are judged harshly in society Very much so. And the female body, yes, judged very harshly. Yes. And on, and on stage as, as professional dancers with the audience that is a very small, already most of them are already dancers or choreographers or implicated in the world. Do, do you find they judge? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they do, actually. <laughs> yeah. I do, too. <laughs> yeah. That. And women judge each other, right, too. I mean, oh, yeah. it's... Uh, um, and surprisingly, sometimes the contemporary dance representations of gender remind me of gender roles from the 50s or you know like especially when we, when it comes to the violence against women that's, that we see on stage and and like you know where we see a woman slapped or or murdered or strangled as a as a dance move it reminds me of the kind of like these sort of 50s or even before kind of moments of like, you know, you don't know if you want to slap me or kiss me or, you know, she says no, but it means yes or all this kind of stuff, which so old, right? <laughs> but it's still there. And um, I th I'd like to move on from that. <laughs> Actually, let's move on to men and oh, men's okay. relationships <laughs> between them. Uh, yeah. Because it's something that I find we don't see on stage much. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll look at how men can relate together to each other, either affection or to some extent violence also. Do you feel that that was something that was important for you to do, to look at the complexity of men's relationships between them? Yes, absolutely. And not just in a sort of gay context either, um, although I'm really happily 
I couldn't happily announce that I am a homosexual. <laughs> okay, breaking news: George Stamos is a homosexual. Yeah, <laughs> but um, some people, yeah, will be very surprised to find that out. But um, anyway, uh, so that does inform my viewpoint, you know. Like, but that said, it's it's a uh, it's not uh, like the pick is not about a gay relationship. <laughs> it's more of a brotherly kind of relationship that we have going on. So so like the way men are with each other in that kind of way of we're physically we can be very direct with each other in in certain ways um which again has this kind of playfulness to it but yeah in terms of the complexities there's also this sort of a shyness emotionally that can happen sometimes with men um so there's so i'm i'm kind of proposing a kind of masculinity that i i guess is um like a the sensitive pig <laughs> <laughs> so yes, very like into pleasure and 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 feeling that animal side and and that sort of um, rougher side of masculinity, but with a sensitivity at the same time and an emotional side. Yeah. Do you feel that sometimes it can be a bit taboo to explore men's relationships between each other? And I, I don't mean here as in a homoerotic sense, mm -hmm. but really about how. Men can show each other affection. Uh, men can support each other. Yeah. Well, I think really quickly things become a gay joke, you know, when these things happen. And I think that that is um, – that's a problem, which is exactly why I kind of didn't want to make this uh, duet just about a, like a, a gay sex affair <laughs> with Danny and I. <laughs> um, because I think it's sort of um, a cop-out on – avoiding these this this other kind of like way that exactly like what you're saying like that men can sh shy away from sharing being sensitive with each other so oh if they're being sensitive with each other it must be that because they're gay you know which we see all the time in subtle ways the the sort of subtle gay joke that happens and you know why is it funny for two men to be like uh just tender to each other or or just emotionally available to each other even why does that have to be only in a romantic way it wouldn't be for women i think i think we would be more comfortable seeing women share their emotions there was this fad um a few years back you know quite quite present on social networks also uh of saying no homo after something that would could be perceived as this gay moment Uh, and creating gay panic to some extent. Mm. Do, do you feel that that's something that we are starting to move away from, or do you feel that that's something that's still ever present? Homophobia? Well, not just homophobia, but this the, the gay panic moments. You know, um, between between straight identified people who are so afraid of being perceived as gay. Well, it's really interesting how it's all kind of shifted. You know, because it's like we've got the. Um, The metrosexual, and we've got people like um, like the situation, for example, on J Jersey Shore, who is like maybe a really good example of like the new macho in a way. But I mean, he wears makeup, he goes tanning all the time, he's so concerned with his body, he's like, you know, it's I think it was a GTL Jim Jim Tan Laundry. Jim Tan Laundry. I'm sorry about knowing that. <laughs> Right, so we've got that as the like straight guy, and then we have 
the the gay culture that is like more and more about growing the beard, which I'm guilty of, gr- growing the beard, um, not appearing uh, too concerned with fashion, being more sort of lumberjacky in their approach, being more more classically manly. So but very expensive lumberjack shirts. <laughs> yes, you maybe know. so. <laughs> but um, so things have kind of like shifted in a way. So it's it's a little hard to pin pin down certain things. Um, but then also to complicate things, we have, you know, what's happening in Russia, which is just, you know, and, and other parts of the world that are, uh, you, you know, it's just horrible what's happening with gay people um, and the torture and abuse of gay people across the world is happening. And then we have straight people that are speaking out against that, which is great. So... Again, it's really a complicated world we're living in with lots of multiplicity of, of, of viewpoints. And uh, So this work has already been presented in a lot of different places. And one of them, you know, uh, among dance makers and the OFTA, uh, is the Queer Arts Festival in Vancouver. Yeah. So perhaps on this topic of interpretation did you was there a difference presenting at that festival versus other places yeah there was um for a few reasons one was that that festival is a festival of um it's not a dance festival exclusively or a performance art festival there's performance art dance theater visual art all in the festival so that was really fun and exciting for me to be sharing a festival with artists from different disciplines in their own field, you know, like, meaning like it wasn't that, because often there might be different collaborators in a, in a dance or performance art festival, but they were, these people were visual artists showing work in gallery as part of the festival. So that was really interesting for me, and I, I enjoyed the, that context and how it opened up the different, uh, again, opening up the way that People see gender and, and uh, different takes on queer, for example. And it was really enjoyable to perform for the queer audience as well. Uh, I think um, I, I felt that maybe some of the thing, aspects of my work that um, have maybe been read as, um, oh, that's weird, that's that weird side that he does, or, oh, it's, it's a freaky, he's freaky, or whatever. I think the, the people got the, the queer audience maybe got, were more tuned into the logic of the references of like how uh, remixing how I was remixing codes because from a queer perspective you do see how things are how things like gender um, uh, are constructs and so from that viewpoint you can see how you can remix them and whereas if you're not coming with that it might just seem like oh it's just a mixed up weirdness right (laughs) but it's actually I'm coming from a viewpoint where I acknowledge that these things are are constructed in society, and so then I'm reconstructing them, taking them apart, putting them back together in new ways. Um, And I think the queer audience really got that, and that was enjoyable. I mean, not that you can't enjoy the piece if you don't get that, and if you think it's weird and just kind of wacky, that's fine with me too. (laughs) So, So I'm looking forward to the Lagora audience in all its queerness or not. Do you have a preference? Do you would you prefer your audience to come prepared in that way? Do you want to inform them of what you're doing in that context? Um, I create work that I try. That's why I try to tap into these universal um, things, like what I was talking about with the food and and certain gender approaches. I 
make work for whoever wants to watch it. I, I'm not part of, I feel what my job is, is to aesthetically, choreographically, um, politically, there's all these kind of categories that I feel like need to be checked. So if you want to like, if you want to come in and experience some, int- some, uh, movement have a, a pure movement experience where you're just tuning into the transmission that the dancers are giving on stage and the and the the way that the space is opened up kinetically the piece is available f- to you for that you can enjoy it on that level and that's okay if you want to also um tune into the political references or contents that are there that's that's available to you too but it's not that um you have to i don't feel this need that everybody needs to understand everything that I'm thinking. I mean, I'm also open to the feedback that I receive where where people might say, oh, it made me think of this. And it, the idea is to open up the space, like literally and metaphorically. I would like to uh, talk a bit about this text that you wrote for the Dance Current. Oh, uh, oh. About, uh, that was for the Dance Current. Oh, the text uh, about improvising oh, on yeah, stage, yeah, 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 yeah. improvising as a performance. Yes, how did that come about? What brought you to write this text? Um, well, it was an invitation um, to write the text. Um, but you mean what were the sort of like the thoughts behind it? Or that well, it, yeah, like basically, you know, you had a lot to say in in that text. Yeah, I guess it's some it's stuff that had been bubbling for quite a while. Oh, yeah. Well, I I think in all honesty that um, the the terms improvisation and set material are insufficient to explain what. Um, most practices are con- in contemporary dance. Um, I think that there are always um, elements of uh, unexpected elements and choices made by the, the the dancers, the interpreters at various levels. And then there's always a plan. Um, it's rare that you really, really don't know. Even if what you know is that you know you're going to go in there at that time and there's going to be this amount of, of time and there's a kind of a structure and the audience is there and the lights are like this and you have this material that you've been practicing for your career. That You could go into an improv like that, but you, there's a there's a lot of set parameters even within that. Um, so that article, in that article, I was trying to address this um, so that we can move beyond um, categorizing things in such um, in insufficient ways and also address um, how maybe perhaps in our education and the way that the, uh, the universities and the dance schools structure their programs is part of why we categorize things in this way because things are, are, are separated where I think Aaron and I talked about that last time too about how, you know, in a technique class you're supposed to just do exercises that are physical exercises that are very separated from the student making any choices about what they do or you know. and then in improv class it's sort of like there's this perception that it's playtime or whatever when in fact improvisational techniques are very rigorous and it's not about having just you know a lot of fun you know so yeah i mean as a and in my practice i certainly mix the two like it's it's uh there's very very set parameters very set materials but at the same time we have to make choices constantly um, we have to balance a lot of factors uh, in the work. Yeah. Of course, yes. This this was all uh, part of uh, the Dirty Feet episode seven, it, which was such an interesting conversation. Something 
that came out of that for me and stuck with me in the context of choreography was you explained how one performer that you were directing might need everything set perfectly and the other performer might need openness and, right, and the ability yeah. <laughs> to improvise within these structures and they're going to end up doing the same thing. Yeah. It's a different way of communicating to them. Yeah, and different ways um, of arriving in the present moment because that's really the goal in the performance is to be present and transmit, execute um, the, the material, the piece, which is you and your body as well. So you, you have to be present with yourself and have a viewpoint on that presence at the same time. And it may be overwhelming for some people to have too many choices and it may take them out of the present moment. Whereas others, it might actually be the only way that they can get into it. Um, whereas, because they, they may feel oppressed, or 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 they may feel that their own presence is squished by too many too many um, confined rules in the in the plan. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot of different kinds of ways people perform. And I did used to. I think there's a shift actually recently, which is kind of coming about in this project, um, where I'm. I'm more like giving direction sort of the same to everybody. (laughs) It's really about the tasks and really about, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just trusting that the people that I work with are, they're putting themselves there no matter what anyway, you know? So I've kind of like shifted it in, in this project where it's, it's like Danny and I have our list of things that we have to do and we know we have to do that. And then we also know that we have to be with each other and we have to be with the audience and and uh, with the material as we do this, all of these things that we have to do, and I, I'm I'm enjoying that. And of course, every piece changes as it yeah. as it continues to be performed. <laughs> uh, can you speak to the first time you put uh, Lick Lick Pick on stage and and to now and how that has changed? Um, well, the first, very first, first was actually before Cloak. Um, it was a solo study. That's also why it was so the interest in redoing Cloak because it was kind of like going back to the origins of Cloak in a way. So that was, so that was the first. But as the duo, how has it changed? I think that the comfort level and the sort of um, brotherly intimacy between Daddy and I as performers has grown. And so there's so the bo- our bodies are more open I think to to each other and more you know our 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 bodies know the material more so that so things can can kind of sit which can let new things come out as we continually cuz part of the direction is to to constantly play with what we have so to you know we we never I never want it to become like complacent where it's like oh okay well we know that so we just do it exactly like that it's like no, we have to keep finding new little moments, new nuances, new textures, new um, ways to approach each other in these moments that we the, we cohabitate the stage. Well, George, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been talking to George Stamos about his uh, upcoming work, Lick, Lick, Pick. Uh, you can catch it most uh, recently here at Agora de la Danse, October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, all at 8 p.m. in the evening. Uh, get your tickets early, I bet. I bet it's going to sell well. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> you are very welcome. Nice to be here. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. 
Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, Joanny Ferrand, and distributed by No More Radio. You can find more about our show at nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show. Do you want to talk?